Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Today we celebrate our mothers, and the reality of being a mom is not always glamorous, especially the new moms. You can attest to that because it's like you're in the thick of it right now, uh, sleep-deprived and everything else. And being a mom is certainly not easy. If it were easy, then us dads would be moms, and it's not easy, so we have a different job. But God gave the role model or the role of motherhood to women because God knew that women could handle the task. Being a woman is tiring, or being a mother, also being a woman, but especially a mom, is tiring. Some said that motherhood is like the guinea pigs in a scientific experiment to show that sleep is not necessary to human life. Being a mom is oftentimes a thankless job. For example, mom does everything for the baby when the baby's born. She feeds the baby. She oftentimes changes the baby more than the dad does. Everything, and the dad responds with the first words of dada to show his appreciation. The job of a mom often comes with a long list of responsibilities. Ashley Worley, who is a blogger for moms.com, wrote an official job overview and gave a list of responsibilities for a mom. And this is what she says for the job description. She writes, children are seeking an adult to care for them at all hours of the day, every day of the week, with minimal breaks. You will be responsible for the upbringing of these children. You will be responsible for making sure that they have enough food to eat, that they are properly bathed, that no accidents fall upon them. And this is all to be completed while they push against everything you say at all times. Worley then goes on to list the responsibilities and duties of being a mom, and one of those include... To be a motivational speaker at all times, even when your employee has not been very nice to you. And we can do all, or we can all agree that being a mom is certainly not easy, and not every moment of motherhood is rewarding. And we would say that being a mom is more the long-term investment rather than the short-term gain. But here are the facts. Moms are foundational to our society. Our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, once stated, All that I am or hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. The Son of God himself had a special place for his mom in his heart. As he hung on the cross in deep agony, he made it absolutely sure that his mother would be taken care of. The Apostle John records in his gospel, in John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, he said, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, being John himself, standing by her, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. As Jesus hung there in agony, he made sure that his mother was taken care of. He had a great love for his mother, and Jesus was thankful for everything that his mother Mary did for him. But perhaps the greatest job of a mother is the nourishment to both the body and the soul that a mother brings to her children. The woman, as we discussed last week, can physically nourish her child with her own body, and the father does not have this ability to do, which gives a whole different level of bonding between the mother and her child. In addition to the impact that a mother makes on her children physically, the mother plays a tremendous role in the spiritual development of her children. The woman is the greatest influence upon her children due to the amount of time that she spends with her children as the father is usually working or out of the home. And I know every family dynamic is different, but usually the woman has the number one role 
and uh, influence in her children's life. The Apostle Paul attributes this spiritual maturity and salvation of Timothy, his protege, to the influence of his mother and grandmother. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says in his greeting in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, he says, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Paul later then adds in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, you, talking about Timothy, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. Well, who taught him that? His mother which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. The godly influence of his mother led Timothy to Christ. Timothy then became one of Paul's greatest disciples, and Timothy had a direct impact upon the very church that we are discussing now, and that being the church in Thessalonica. So take your Bibles with me as we continue our study and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, as we continue our journey here in the book of 1 Thessalonians, this first epistle to the church. Our passage this morning does not deal directly with mothers, but the influence of godly mothers does play a role in the crucial establishment of this church. As we observed just a few moments ago, the godly influence of Timothy's mother led Timothy to salvation. Timothy then accompanied the Apostle Paul during his second missionary journey, and the Apostle Timothy, or, or the disciple Timothy and Silas, both assisted Paul in planting this church here in Thessalonica. And that can all be traced back to the godly influence of his mother. Eventually, the apostle's visit was cut short, as we discussed. He desired deeply to go back to the church because he felt like the church wasn't firmly established in the faith. He did everything he could in the short period of time to, to lead them in the ways of the Lord, but he felt like his time was cut short. And so even in his a couple of different attempts there, he could not make it back. He sends Timothy to go and visit the church. Timothy does so and brings back a progress report of the church, which then prompted Paul to write this first letter. Paul had a deep love for the church in Thessalonica, and a love that Paul had was extremely evident all throughout this letter. The apostle takes on the role of a, of a mother towards her children by lovingly caring for them, nourishing for them, and developing or really giving his entire life. In fact, as we examined last week, the apostle Paul compares his love for the church to a nursing mother. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7-8, through 8, the apostle Paul says, We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our lives also, because you had become dear to us. And that statement, the Apostle Paul describes his heart for the people in the church and in Thessalonica and his heart behind this first letter. The Apostle Paul loved them with a sacrificial selfless type of love just as a mother loves her child. Every word that Paul says to this church comes from a heart of great love and care. This morning we find ourselves examining verses 13 through 16 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. At this moment, the Apostle Paul in his letter delivers specific encouragement to the church by recognizing who they are in Christ and also recognizing the persecution that they had received because of who they were in Christ. Paul's purpose within these verses is to affirm the church's relationship to Christ because of the gospel and make them aware of the underlying reason behind their persecution. One of the biggest blessings that I have with my wife is how she as a mother 
although not perfect, because no, no moms are perfect, she'd be the first one to admit that, but she uses every opportunity that she can to guide our children back to the gospel. Uh, my children play with several different kids uh, here in church and outside of that as well, and there's been a few different occasions where they play with some of the kids either in the neighborhood or in the community who are not saved. And in their interactions, those kids respond back to our kids or say things that our kids would not say. And our kids would then come to us, or mostly my wife, and tell her that. And rather than my wife getting upset with a child and fueling the anger that my children have, she helps our children understand that, especially Kaysen, because I do believe Kaysen is a follower of Christ. Emerson's not there yet, but she's asking questions. Kaysen, you are a child of God. And so therefore, this is your role in that interaction. That other kid is not a child of God. And our goal as a follower of Christ is not to prove your point, but to ultimately pray for them and be kind to them so that they can see the love of Christ and bring them back. What she's doing is she's affirming who he is, a child of God, and she's helping them understand why they are responding the way they are responding. They are not a child of God who is in need of a Savior. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul does here within these verses. He comes from a nurturing, motherly type of spirit, but also in a fatherly type of exhortation. And he reminds the church, this is who you are. You are in Christ, a follower of Christ, and you're receiving persecution because of who you are. So therefore, this is how you ought to be encouraged or can be encouraged in these type of interactions. And so with all of that being said, we come to our title of our message this morning, and that is Comforting Words to a Persecuted Church. Comforting Words to a Persecuted Church. Paul begins by thanking God for the salvation of the church. He starts off in verse 13. He says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Now, before we move any further, we have to define the specific audience whom Paul is talking to. We understand that to be the church in Thessalonica, but what makes a church a church? Not every congregation that calls themselves a church indeed is a church from a scriptural standpoint. A church from a scriptural standpoint is a group of believers that have been called out, we refer to them as the elect, in order to fulfill the kingdom of God. As we understand, there are churches and institutions out there that do not that refer to themselves as a church, but do not biblically fit the role of that. They do not preach the gospel. They do not have a congregation that has repented of their sins and turned to Christ and given their life to Christ. They look at other things like good works and other things. So just because a church calls himself a church does not make them a church. And so what we're going to see here in the preceding words is really a profile of what a genuine God-honoring church truly is, which leads us to our first point here this morning, and that is the profile of the church. Again, the Apostle Paul is affirming who they are. Paul continues in verse 13 by explaining the why behind his thankfulness. Paul says, because when you receive the word of God, this is why I thank God, when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in the truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Now, before we just glance over this verse, Paul highlights for us several different factors when it comes to this godly church, the foundation of a godly church. Last week, we examined the foundation of godly ministry. We looked at back in verses 13 through 14 being more or less a continuation of verses 1 through 12. Last week, we looked at the first foundation of God-honoring ministry, and that is the proclamation of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says in verse 2, if you want to look back there, verse 2, he says, We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. 
He then goes in verse 13 in his reasoning for thanking God, says, you received the word of God, which you heard from us. Here's the first subpoint when it comes to the profile of a church, and that is this. The fact of a godly church is the leadership preaches the gospel. The leadership preaches the gospel, and this seems so basic to us. A church, you go to church and you hear the gospel being preached, but unfortunately today it is not as common as many people would believe. Many churches are more concerned with padding the seats and numerical growth than they are with spiritual growth that they water down the scriptures, they fail to preach on sin, they fail to preach on our need for a savior and what the gospel does through us and our spiritual growth that they tend to stray away from that and they preach upon things like self-help and whatever, fill in the blank. Jesus calls them wolves. He says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 16, Beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. He says, Beware of those false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they look like a pastor. They dress like a pastor. They say the things that pastors say, but their words and what they are saying are not communicating the truth. They are ravenous wolves that are seeking to destroy you. He calls them false prophets. Now, I'm not here to judge anybody's character, and I'm myself, I'm not perfect, but if a church or a pastor is not preaching the gospel and the truth of salvation and the truth of what the context says within the word of God, then they are not doing what they've been called to do from a God-scriptural standpoint. Understanding this attempt to persuade people would be an unfortunate common experience. So what John does in his first epistle in 1 John chapter 4 is he urges us to test the spirits. He says, believe or uh, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh is not of God. And John differentiates the, the, the difference between a false preacher and a true preacher. What is that? It's identifying what a true preacher is, and that is the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the good news that Jesus Christ came to earth. So when the Apostle Paul says that, that not every spirit or the false spirits are the ones that do not confess that Jesus Christ has come to the flesh, he's referring to the fact that they do not preach the gospel. They are undermining who Jesus is and why Jesus came. Jesus being the key to everything, the key to our hope. And so he says that the first element of a church, the profile of a church, is a leadership that preaches the gospel. You've heard the gospel that we have said to you, but then he continues on bringing the second point, and that is the congregation believes the gospel. Look at verse 13. He continues. He says, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And the apostle Paul rejoices in two things. First off, he rejoices in the fact that people, hear me now, listen to the preacher. They listen to the preacher. Now, I understand that I certainly do not have it all together when it comes to listening, because my ADD sometimes gets the best of me, as I've been so lovingly informed by some of you in here, Miss Lisa, that I have elements of ADD. And I know that that comes in every once in a while. So I'm not here saying I have it all together, but when it comes to preaching, God has designed the foolishness of preaching, as what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, to speak to a lost and dying world. The Apostle Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to those who believe. 
So it is both the responsibility of the preacher to preach the gospel and the responsibility of the congregation to listen to the gospel being preached. I'm not saying you listen to me you or Pastor Bryce, but you listen to God working through us. I've heard on uh, multiple different occasions. All right, let's put this in perspective. Preaching on a Sunday morning here is about 30 to 35 minutes, okay? 30 to 35 minutes, and I've heard multiple people over the years come to me, and they mean it with great hearts, but they say, Pastor, you, uh, you said something, and the Lord laid it upon my heart that I just could not focus in the message, and I spent the rest of the time praying or trying to figure this out. The Lord would not lay something upon your heart wanting you to pray during the particular time in which the, his word is being proclaimed. I'm just going to throw that out there. You say, well, Pastor Brandon, there's some preachers out there, and they are extremely boring. In the Old Testament, you know what they did? They just read the Bible, and people listened. There were no PowerPoints, is what Rich likes to point out. There were no uh, graphics and flannel things. They didn't have any of that. They just read the Word of God, and they listened. I say all that to say this. We have 23 and a half hours on a Sunday that, that can be given to everything else. The 30 minutes in preaching, we have to do whatever we can to focus on the Word of God that is being proclaimed. But also, here's a freebie. If, if there are certain days in which it is hard to pay attention and, and you find yourself being distracted during the message, don't tell me. Just don't let me know. Um, because that happens, right? And I know, and I know that people are like, listen, I struggled and I got it. Uh, just fake it, all right? Before me, like, act like you're paying attention because of all the hours the pastor has pour into it. We don't want to hear somebody say, man, I got distracted during the message. Um, whatever. It's just throwing it out there as a freebie for the pastor in the future, okay? The second thing that Paul rejoices is not only in the fact that they listen to the preacher, is that uh, the people accepted the words of the preacher as truth, not because the preacher said it, but because God said it. The word of God is where true change happens, not the words of man. And one of the reasons why the church continued after Paul's time was cut short, if you think about it, Paul left, but the church was still there. Why did it continue? Is because they weren't basing their faith upon the man of Paul, but upon the word of God. And I've said this multiple times, a church and the attendance of a church should not reflect on whether or not the pastor is there that week or who is preaching that week. And I understand there are uh, dynamic preachers that are out there. I got it. There are people out there that I love listening to and other ones that I love less listening to, if I could put it that way. But a solid church should not come to church for the charismatic leadership of the pastor, although that is an element of it. They should come to church because of the word of God that's being preached. And that's what the people were doing here. They continued on in their church because they did not base their faith on Paul, but upon the truths of the word of God. And so they listened, and they took it as what it was, and that was the truth of the Word of God. Another reason why we encourage people to bring their Bibles, we put it up on the screen. I don't want you to take my word for it. Look at it in the Word of God and decipher what I'm saying to make sure it's actually the Word of God. I think I might have shared this before here in church, but uh, when I was a youth pastor, the kids would never bring their Bibles, which is, you know, typical for a lot of people, but I wanted to teach them a lesson. And so I got up that morning, or one of the evenings there during youth group, and I started to read out of the Quran. And uh, I said, open up your Bibles to whatever. And I started reading out of the Quran. And the kids just looked at me as if it was, uh, yeah, it was a great message from the Bible. And I paused and I said, do you know what I just read? And they're like, no. I said, I read you out of the Quran, which is not the Bible, which is why you ought to bring your Bible to church and follow along so you're not taking my word for it. And so the kids got that, hopefully they got that lesson. But that's why we bring our Bibles to church is to follow along. Or we have it up on the screen. 
But when a church identifies themselves with a man rather than God, nothing good ever comes out of it. But they listened and they trusted it being the word of God as the Apostle Paul did through the, uh, the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit preached the word. We have the third aspect of a church, and that is this. The preachers preach the word of God. The congregation accepts and believes it as the word of God. But let us see the congregation grows because of the gospel. The congregation grows because of the gospel. Look at verse 13. He ends with this. He says, which also effectively works in you who believe. Spiritual growth takes place when the truths of the gospel penetrates our hearts, bringing about life change. And the apostle Paul assures us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, that all scripture is given by inspiration and it is profitable for every area of our life, for instruction, for reproof, for correction, and for righteousness. Now, how does the word of God work in us? The psalmist says in Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The word of God contains everything that we need for spiritual growth, which is why it is so important, once again, for the word of God to be proclaimed and be the foundation of our Sunday morning services, or any service for that matter. It must be the preaching and the teaching of God's word, not man's opinion. Because when God's word interacts with the Holy Spirit, as we see the truths of God's word and the illumination of the Holy Spirit takes place, that's when we see these truths and spiritual growth continues to grow. That's what the Apostle Paul uh, says by the word of God being effectively working in those who believe. But here's the final aspect when it comes to the profile of the church, and that is this, the church endures persecution for the gospel. Verse 14, it says, For you, brethren became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus for you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans. Paul informs the congregation in Thessalonica that they were not alone in the persecution by reminding them of the churches in Judea. And what we see and through the persecution is the word of God being spread all throughout the region. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. We're not going to take the time to read that. But it gives us the account of the persecution that took place there in Judea. The, uh, the author says, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed, they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And then he adds this, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of them came to be about 5,000. Even in the midst of persecution, the way that God so sovereignly designed it, 5,000 people came to Christ. But the Apostle Paul says, listen, church in Thessalonica, you are imitators of the church in Judea because of the persecution in which you receive. Why do you receive that? Because you've heard the gospel, you've accepted the gospel, you believe that, and now the gospel is growing in you and the world hates it. And so you better believe you're going to receive that persecution. So what the Apostle Paul does through all of this is he affirms who they are because they accepted the gospel and they are genuine followers of Christ. So he affirms who they are. And so as a tender, uh, godly mother affirms their child of who they are. Paul affirms the church who they are. And verses 15 through 16, Paul then shifts to focus specifically on the persecutors themselves, which brings us to our next point this morning. And that is the profile of the persecutor. Now, according to the context here, Paul is specifically addressing the Jews. 
He's specifically talking to the Jews. Paul says in verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. And while it is true that we all put Jesus on the cross because of our sin, Paul specifically focused on the Jews because it was the Jews that rejected the Messiah as a whole. The Jews are not to blame for the crucifixion. Our sin is ultimately to blame. But the Jews were God's chosen people that chose to reject God. And everywhere Paul went, he dealt with confrontation, mainly from the Jews and not the Gentiles. Only on a couple of occasions, very few occasions, did the Apostle Paul say that he was dealt with opposition from the Gentiles. Other than that, every single time, it was from the Jews. Time and time and time again. And this dilemma increased his frustration with the Jews as a whole. As we mentioned before, the church in Thessalonica was mainly made up of Gentiles with a few Jews. The church was being persecuted primarily by Jews, and the Apostle Paul had a great, great burden over that church. So in the preceding verses, Paul defines the characteristics of the persecuting Jews, which can be applied to persecutors everywhere. And here's the first sub-point here, and that is this. The persecutor foundationally rejects the gospel. The persecutor rejects the gospel. Verse 15, he says, who killed Jesus and their own prophets. Jesus being the foundation of the gospel, the prophets were being the preachers of the gospel. In response to it, the Jews killed Jesus. They wanted nothing to do with him. When it came to the death of Jesus, even though it was the Romans that did the physical act of crucifying, it was the Jews that falsely accused Jesus, brought Jesus before the Romans. As you read about Pilate, they wanted nothing to do with it. They wanted nothing to do with, they didn't find any fault in Jesus whatsoever. Again, the Romans being the Gentiles. They found no issue with Jesus, but the Jews kept pushing and kept pushing and kept pushing, and then eventually Jesus was crucified. Stephen being the first martyr, and you read these words, and it's like, Stephen, I understand now why you had the rocks thrown at you, and I mean that in respect because of how bold he was. In Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 52, uh, Stephen says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. And Stephen calls them out for not only killing Jesus, but also the prophets. And of course, we understand that leading to the death of Stephen. And so the very foundational point of a persecutor is they reject the gospel. The Jews did that by killing Jesus and killing the prophets. And then the second aspect is that the persecutor then rejects the messenger of the gospel. They reject the gospel. They reject the messenger. Paul says at the end of verse 15, they do not please God and are contrary to all men. Now, some of your uh, versions may say something a little bit different. You can take that phrase that I just read, and you could really say they displease God and they oppose all mankind. Well, what is the Apostle Paul saying? That just as it's the will of God in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that all men be saved, that is God's will, all men be saved, the persecutor's will is that no one gets saved. And so therefore, anyone that comes through proclaiming the gospel, the truth of the gospel, they will persecute and reject and try to shut you up because they don't want anyone having a life changed by the power of the gospel. And that's what the Jews did. They tried to do everything that they could in order to shut the church up, uh, which leads us really into letter C. They reject the messenger of the gospel. Then the persecutor, what do they do? They reject the spread of the gospel, which is kind of one and the same thing. They reject the messenger, and any attempt to spread the gospel, they reject that as well. 
You cannot reject the gospel, or you cannot spread the gospel for that matter, if you do not have a messenger. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15, Paul says, How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Paul says here in verse 16 that the Jews forbade them to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. And this is really the underlying element of Paul's frustration. It's not that the Jews went in there and persecuted the church, although he was frustrated about that. He was really frustrated because the Jews did everything they could to shut Paul up and prevent the spread of the gospel. Matter of fact, it all kind of came to a, a climax in Acts chapter 18. Again, Paul dealing with it time and time again. First missionary journey, second missionary journey of the Jews constantly making an issue. The Apostle Paul says in verses 5 through 6 that when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus Christ had come. But when, but when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to him, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will now go to the Gentiles. And that's where the ministry shift took place. He moved away from the Gentiles and now he focuses, or moved away from the Jews and focused on the Gentiles. In verse 16, Paul declares now the future of the persecutor. Because of everything they did to try to oppose the gospel from being spread, letter D, the persecutor will receive ultimately the wrath of God. The end of verse 16, the apostle Paul says, So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And that phrase there, filling up a measure of their sins, is repeatedly found in the Jewish literature to reflect the understanding of divine justice. It identifies the level of transgressions to be reached before God's wrath is exercised, but what exactly is Paul referring to here? Is he referring to the Jewish nation as a whole? Is he referring to their Babylonian captivity that happened in the past? Is he referring to a prophetic proclamation of when Jerusalem would eventually fall, in which it did in AD 70? Is he referring to the end of the world in which the tribulation will come, Jesus Christ will come at the second coming, at the end of the tribulation, and he will uh, take ownership of the entire world? Is he referring to that? Or is he referring to the eternal separation from God from a soteriology standpoint? Those that have rejected Christ spend forever and eternity in hell. And according to many commentators, all four of those could be possibilities, but more than likely what the Apostle Paul is referring to there is the eternal wrath in which they will experience being separated from God. Bottom line, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that you as a Christian, he's taking that motherly approach, you as a Christian, you need to understand that you are in Christ and there's nothing that anyone can do to take you away from that. But also understand that the world hates you. Jesus says that before they hated you, they hated me. So they don't ultimately hate you, they ultimately hate who you represent. And so be prepared for persecution, because it will happen. But you can be encouraged in the fact that even though they may seem like they're getting by with everything now, and of course we know that nobody can overthrow God's sovereign plan, eventually, eventually, they will have to spend forever and eternity separated from God. Not that we want that or desire that, but we understand that God is ultimately in control. And so the Apostle Paul, in this way of encouraging, but also in a way of revealing his frustration that he has towards the Jews, tells the church, thank you. It is evident that you are followers of Christ because you have withstood the persecution. You have remained consistent through the persecution, but don't become weary. 
keep pressing forward, keep going forward, but also remember that you cannot expect them to respond in any way differently than what they are responding now because they are not followers of Christ. So you keep the main thing, the main thing, and that is preach the word of God, listen to the word of God, allow the word of God to work in your hearts, and you keep praying for those that persecute you and don't lose the faith and keep going and keep pursuing the cause of Christ.